Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples weekly sermon podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we uh, are gathered here right now together in this room on purpose, Lord, because we want to hear from you today. So, Lord, as we quiet our hearts and we open up our minds to you, we pray that you would take this time, take these words, Lord, and you would speak to our hearts today. Lord, that you would encourage us and remind us, Lord, that you would correct us and convict us. Lord, change us so that we leave this place today different than when we came in. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, Matthew 21 uh, in your Bible probably has a little title that says triumphal entry. Does that, anybody have that? This is interactive, so you can say yes or shake your heads yes. Actually, good. Um, Well, that's because by many it was considered to be a triumphal entry. Uh, On the part of the people, as we're going to see, they thought that they were getting a conqueror who was going to come in and defeat their oppressor, and he was riding in to be that savior. Uh, They're going to say, Hosanna, save now. They're going to call out to him. And so for them, it looked like, hey, this was the time of this triumphal entry of a new leader. I'm doing it. I know. I'm going to forever do this. I can see you're snickering and laughing. That's okay. I'm okay with it. It's because I got a hold of the truth. It's right there. But it wasn't just a triumphal entry to those who were witnessing it. It actually was a triumphal entry, I believe, of Jesus himself. Now, Jesus is riding in, by the way, for the last time. And he knows this. He's riding into Jerusalem, a city that he has gone into dozens and dozens of times over his lifetime, even for just this feast, at least 20 times he's gone into Jerusalem. The Passover, which is where we are, was a required feast. Everybody had to go to Jerusalem for this feast. And so from the moment that he was at least 12 or 13 years old, every single year, he's been going into Jerusalem. But he comes in all the time, even in just his ministry alone, which is just the last couple of years, he's gone in probably a dozen times. But this time is significant because this time is the last time. And he knows it. He knows going in that this is the last time that he's going in to the city. Okay, now I guess we can get technical and says, oh, during this whole week, he goes in and out and in and out and in and out. Because he doesn't stay in the town. He goes and stays with his friends in Bethany. Um, But what I mean is he knows that this is the end for him on earth. This is the last time. This is the end of his ministry. And still, I believe that he feels this is a triumphal entry. Now, not in the same way that they all think, but in a way that not that he's going to come in and, and uh, defeat the enemy that they think needs to be overcome, but he's going to come in and defeat the enemy that he knows needs to be overcome. We're going to look at that today. And so he writes in. When he comes in, and we'll look to he, there's a, there's a verse here, five, that says, tell the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew writes that in the account. He's quoting Zechariah 9, 9, but he's actually kind of paraphrasing the verse. Listen, I'm going to read it to you. This is actually from the book of Zechariah. It's 500 years before Christ is born 
that this is said. He says, it says in verse nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. See, this was a prophecy of the Messiah who would come and Jesus knew it. And he knew that he was coming in uh, as, a, as a conqueror, not in the way that they thought, but because he was bringing salvation in his hand. And that was the purpose he was coming, to go to the cross. And it was through the cross that he brought salvation to all of them and to all of us. And so I believe that he saw this also as his triumphal entry. Maybe it felt different. I'm sure it did, but still triumphant. So let's take a look at this. Let's walk through this. And I'm going to just relieve you of your fears. We're not doing the entire chapter today. <laughs> verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her and loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. And so Jesus says, as they come upon the, as they're coming up to Jerusalem, he sends in two guys. He says, you're going to go in, you're going to find a donkey and a colt tied up. When you do untie them and bring them to me. And if anybody says to you, why are you taking my donkey and my cult? You say, the Lord has need of them. Now, um, it's going to say right here that the, well, they went in, they did that, and they got the donkey, they brought out. In the other gospels, like I think it's like Mark and, and Luke, um, it actually says that while they were untying the donkeys, just as the Lord said, people came up and said, hey, <laughs> why are you taking our donkey and our cult? Just like Jesus said they would do. And they said, because the Lord has need of them. And they said, Okay, just like that. Now, I'm sure there was a moment when Jesus was like, you're going to go in, you're going to find this donkey, just untie them. And if anybody says anything, just tell them that, that I need them and, and they'll let you go. And I'm sure there was a moment where the, the two disciples that he sent in were like, are you sure? <laughs> you sure that's going to work out? Because that seems crazy. You know, um, are we going to have to fight off? The people, give me your donkey. You know, actually, we don't know. We don't know whether this was like a miraculous thing that happened or if Jesus called ahead and, and just made arrangements for, for a donkey and a cult to be available. I mean, we, I mean, we can't just assume that a miracle happened here. We don't have the evidence that, that they didn't know ahead of time. Maybe Jesus did message ahead. You know, he just got out his phone and was like, by the way, Maybe he made arrangements ahead. Maybe this is supernatural. Either way, it is as he said it would be, and that's it. And he said, when you go in, this is how it will be. Doesn't matter how crazy it sounds to you. When you go in, you'll find it this way. Just bring me the donkey and bring me the, the colt, the foal, um, because that's how I'm going to enter the city. Because he says there... Um, in verse four, on all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. And so why did Jesus do it this way? Well, number one, because it was prophesied that that's the way it would happen. 500 years in, uh, in before any of this was going on, 500 years, you know, Zechariah writes this. By the way, do you know when Zechariah wrote this? 
Some of you um, are in groups that are studying Ezra and Nehemiah during the week. Well, Zechariah was actually a prophet that God sent to the people who were rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem because they had gotten a little discouraged, and he sent them back to encourage them that what they were doing was an important part of the Messiah who would come much, much later, but they were playing a part in it that was very important. And so God sent Zechariah ahead onto them to give them this prophecy, and that's what he's, this is part of that prophecy. You can go and actually read the book of Zechariah. It's in your Bible. Check it out. See what it is. See the message that God gave to Zechariah. But this right here, Jesus says, I'm riding in on a donkey, and not just a donkey, a foal of a donkey or a colt, because it is prophesied to be such. And it says, so the disciples went in and did as Jesus commanded, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on him, and they sent him, uh, and they set him on it. So they go in, they get the donkey and the colt, and the colt, by the way, so donkey, colt, both things, and they bring them out, and they, it says they set their clothes on. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, and so Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry on a little donkey. <laughs> Here he comes in, just a little donkey. In fact, I imagine, like, I can't, I mean, I don't know how big Jesus was. He's somewhere around 5'10 and 6 foot, I imagine. We're talking about a, a, not even a full-grown donkey. I can't imagine that his feet were dragging on the ground as he's riding, and even sitting side saddle, you know, they're kind of, as he's going in, you know, he's driving in. And you would think, like, Why? Would he pick a donkey? Why would they prophesy that the, the king, the savior, the Messiah would come in on a donkey? Why not a war horse? Some white stallion riding in all proud and off he goes. And <laughs> Why a donkey? Well, first of all, um, it's not the first time. Actually, uh, it wasn't like it was a silly little thing for a king to ride on a donkey. It was done this way. You know, actually, and you can read about this in the, the book of First Kings in the very first chapter where Solomon, excuse me, David, is it says he's well advanced in age and, and dying old, probably 70. I'm not making that up. That's, that's for real. But he's old and he, he, you know, he's at the end of his life and his family knows. <laughs> Do you guys need a minute? <laughs> He was so old, so old, advanced. It says, well advanced in age, it says. And he couldn't really go on. And so everybody figured, well, okay, this is David's, this is the end of David's time. He's going to die. And so David's, one of David's wife's sons, Adonijah, assumes that he is going to be the next king. And so he gets together all of his friends and he gets together some military leaders and he starts throwing a coronation party for himself. Now, um, what's that guy's name? Nathan hears of it because he's not invited, by the way. And he goes to Bathsheba, another one of David's wives. And he says, did you know that David's other son, Adonijah, has already proclaimed himself king? And didn't David say that your son Solomon was going to be king? We need to do something about this. So he says to Bathsheba, um, this is what you do. You go into David and you say, hey, David, I, I heard that Adonijah is claiming to be king. Um, and you're not even, you know, you're still here. <laughs> 
um, but didn't you say that my son Solomon would be king? And then Nathan says, and then I'll come in and I'll say the same thing. Like, you know, like we didn't plan this, but, but I'll come in and say the same thing. And so that's what happens. Bathsheba goes into David. Meanwhile, you know, Ed and I just got this whole little coronation party going on, another part of town. And Bathsheba comes in and she says, uh, David, you know, didn't, didn't you say that my son um, Solomon was going to be king after you died? And then Nathan comes in and says, hey, David, did you know that Adonijah is claiming to be king? And didn't you say Solomon was going to be king? And, and David's like, what is going on here? Now, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out right here that none of this would be a problem if David had one wife, <laughs> if you recall from last week's conversation. If he had one wife, this probably would not have come up. But he has multiple wives with multiple sons who think that they're the ones that are in line for the throne. So David says, I did say that, didn't I? And this Solomon will be king. So what he says to Nathan is, go and get Zadok, the priest, and take my son Solomon and put him on my donkey and ride him into the center of town. Now, David's donkey was reserved for just him, just the king, ride him into the center of town so that everybody could see, and then um, anoint him with oil and blow the trumpets and declare him king right now. And so that's exactly what they do is they put, they take Solomon, they put him on David's donkey and they ride him in, not a big white horse, a donkey. And they bring him into the town square and they announce and they anoint him with oil and they announce him as king. And they have, and all the people are shouting. In fact, it's really neat because it says in verse 40 here, and all the people went up after him and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth seemed to split their sound. Just hold on to that. Hold on to that piece for a minute. We're going to come back to that. So seeing a king ride into town on a donkey not that unusual to the Jewish people. To the Romans and maybe the Greeks, that would be nuts, right? But to the Jews, this is something that they know to be the sign of a king. So this is why they're not surprised when they see him. They're not put off. They're not, they're not saying they're going, oh, that's so weird. You know what? Never expected the, the conquering Messiah to come in on a donkey. They did expect that. They knew the scriptures. They were not surprised to see him on a donkey. So in he comes, riding on a donkey. And in verse 8, it says, A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road and cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So you have to understand, you picture this in your mind. First of all, thousands and thousands of Jews are coming into Jerusalem because this is Passover. It's not just a required feast. It's like the most fun one. And so it's a huge feast that they're coming into that they're required to be at. Just thousands and thousands of people are streaming in at this time. And here comes Jesus 
riding on a donkey, as was prophesied 500 years before. And they start to see this. Now, in other chapters, I mean, in other gospels, it also says that there were a lot of people here who had witnessed him doing several of the miracles in his life. And so he wasn't even a stranger to them. They had seen with their own eyes some of the miraculous things that he had been doing up till this point. And so they see him now on a donkey riding in Jerusalem. And they're just like, let's go. And they crowd around a great multitude of people. We're not just talking about like his 12 apostles or a handful of disciples. A great multitude of people are around. So much so that it says that all the city was moved. In Greek, that word moved means quaked. That's like where we get seismic energy or or earthquakes. It's like there were so many people standing and shouting around him that the whole city was shaken like an earthquake, just like when Solomon was brought out and it says that the the sound was so great that it seemed that they would split with the sound. Insane. And so cool. Well, you've got this group here and uh, they're, they're around Jesus and he's riding in and it says that they took their, what's it say? Clothes and cut, spread clothes on the, on the road and cut down branches. So let's talk about that for a minute. These, this is one of those things that I often have just taken for granted. I just assumed like they don't have a saddle so they just put their coat over top of the donkey or they're uh, being chivalrous as Jesus is riding along and they're like, oh, we don't want the donkey to step in this mud puddle, you know, and they would put their coat down. But then you could take that a little further and say, you know what, really what I think they were doing is they were like honoring, honoring Jesus as the Messiah was coming in with whatever they had to give. But it's more than that, actually. So the word garment here um, isn't just their outer jacket. It's actually something called a talit, which is a prayer shawl that they would wear. You can, you can look this up. You can read all about it. You can, but it was a, a, a kind of like a blanket that had tassels on the end. In fact, this is the neat part. This is where God is like, hey, I'm just going to connect everything together for you. In the very next chapter of Deuteronomy that we'll be in after Easter, he talks about this garment and its tassels. In the next chapter that we're going to cover... He talks about this very garment. It was this garment. It was dear to them. They certainly had it on right now as they were going in for a feast time, right? But they would have this prayer shawl that they would use and sometimes cover their head when they would pray. But it was on them underneath their outer jacket almost all the time. In fact, it was so dear to them that if they had to leave their house or evacuate or run away, it would be the first thing that they would make sure they had because they wanted to make sure they had their talit, their prayer shawl with them. Now that's the thing that they're taking off and putting on the ground so that the donkey that the Messiah is riding on walks across it rather than walk on the ground. It was so dear to them, and yet they were laying it at the feet of Jesus. What do you have that is dear to you that you're willing to lay down at the feet of Jesus? This was a prized possession that they laid down at the feet of Jesus. Like, what, what, what are your prized possessions? I mean, maybe it's a thing like they had. 
Well, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job, a career. Maybe it's your 401k. What do you have that's precious and dear to you? And are you willing to lay it at the feet of the Messiah, at the feet of Jesus? What do you have? I don't know what it is for you, but you can know. Maybe it's coming to you right now, even as I'm saying this. Maybe you're like, I'm, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't know. Ask God and say, God, what is it that I'm holding on to that I need to lay at the feet of Jesus? What's so dear to me that I just couldn't part with it? But they were taking off this possession and laying it on the ground so that he could pass over top of it because he was more important than it. Get it? Now, the other thing that they did was some of them, it says, cut down branches, and another gospel identifies them as palm branches, and, uh, which is why we have palm Sunday. That's why it's called that, because they cut down palm branches, and they were waving them, and they were putting them on the ground. And have you ever wondered why they did that? Because they, they didn't have a prayer shawl? And they were like, what can I do? <laughs> Throw that down. Actually, it's much deeper than that. You see, about 160, 170 years before this, um, there was a, something called a Maccabean Revolt, right? And so you can read all about this. There's like a lot of detail in this story about Alexander the Great and, and how he was conquering everything in a pretty good relationship with the Jews in Jer- Jerusalem. And for a long time, he allowed them to kind of rule themselves autonomously, even though he was kind of taking over. Um, but at some point when there was like a split and he died and then his friends came in and they couldn't seem to get along and there was war um, and the Jews were still kind of doing okay. And then all of a sudden you get this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a lunatic. In fact, his nickname was Anti- Antiochus Epimenes. <laughs> they got him with that one, didn't they? <laughs> it was the difference between... Epimenes means like crazy person, right? And so... He was crazy, and he was like, you know what? I'm going to make everyone Greek. Everyone. Greek gods, Greek customs, everything Greek, Greek dress. And what was happening is that the Hellenistic Jews were embracing it. And they were like, yes, this seems like a great idea. Let's all do this. But the traditional non-Hellenistic Jews were like, no, 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 no. This is bad. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes is so adamant about this that he comes into the temple and he just, he just like vandalizes the whole temple. He sets up altars to pagan Greek gods. He actually brings all of the priests in and makes them sacrifice a pig on the altar and then makes them eat their flesh, which was completely against God's law altogether. And anybody who didn't do it, they were executed. Now, there was one family led by this priest called Mattathias. And Mattathias and his sons went out into a kind of a country town outside of Jerusalem to try and escape what was going on, the Hellenization of Jerusalem. Now, eventually, the uh, soldiers from uh, Antiochus Epiphanes' armies came out and came before Mattathias and said, you need to sacrifice this pig in front of everybody as an example, and then you need to eat its flesh. And, he's, and uh, he was like, I'm not going to do that. So another man steps up and was like, I'll do it. And Mattathias jumped up and killed him and then killed the soldier as well. 
And that was the beginning. So what happened is they started, there was a war waged behind, be, between Mattathias and his family, and he had a bunch of sons, as I mentioned. Judah was one of them, right? Judah would later become known as Judah Maccabees, which means the hammer. That wasn't their last name, by the way. It was his nickname. Judah was called the hammer because he was a tough guerrilla warfare style fighter. And so they were constantly attacking the, the Greek army that was coming in um, trying to, to crush them. And they would, you know, march down in, in, you know, in formation. And then the, the Judah and his brothers and his army, which was small, would hide up in the mountains and they would attack them and throw stones and, and just kill them all. Anyway, look it up. You can read it. It's really actually a good story. Eventually, Judah Maccabee and his brothers and his army are able to kind of march into Jerusalem and retake the city almost without any effort at all because the other army that had been uh, gone off to fight another battle, the Greek army, the Seleucid army, had been pulled off to another place. And so they're able to ride into the city as the, the, the freedom fighters of the ones that were oppressing them. And he goes in, and you know what he does? He cleanses the temple. He goes in, and, and this is about 160 years before Jesus. He goes in, and he goes to, and he cleans the temple because it had been completely vandalized. Um, he tears down the altars. They start to rebuild. Um, and as he's coming in, and, and from his time onward, all the way through, his, he, he eventually is killed. Jonathan, his brother, takes over. Jonathan's eventually killed. And then Simon, his brother, takes over. Um, through all of this time, the palm branch becomes a symbol of the one who came in and freed them from oppression and cleansed the temple. They, in fact, they would stamp it on coins. They would wave it as they came in to procession, especially Simon, not so much Judah, but Simon, his brother, when he would ride in, they would wave the palm branch. Now, you know that when they came in and they cleansed the temple of all the pagan um, statues and, and, and graffiti, actually, it says that there was in there, um, that they, they found the menorah and they wanted to light the menorah, but they only had enough oil for one day. So they lit it anyway, and it miraculously burned for eight days. That's Hanukkah, in case you didn't know. That's where Hanukkah comes from. But that's why they were raising, waving and cutting down palm branches, because they recognized that just like the Judah and his brothers who came in and freed the city and the, cleansed the temple from the oppressors, they see Jesus coming in and they're like, here he comes. He's on the donkey. It's been prophesied. They're putting their cloaks down. He's walking over. They're cutting down palm branches and waving them. It was like, this is the freedom, of our, the freedom fighter for our oppressor. And it's like, I picture this in my head. They're like, let's go. Now, it's not the Greeks now. It's the Romans, right? And so they're like, come on, Jesus. Let's go to the Fortress Antonio and wipe them out. And there's Jesus riding along with them. And they go to the Fortress Antonio, and he goes off to the temple. Just like Judah Maccabee. Right? Because Jesus was like, I am actually coming in to defeat the oppressor of your soul but it's not the Romans. It's your own sin. That's what we're going to see when he goes into the temple. So it says, and when he had come into Jerusalem and all the city was moved and they said, who is this? In fact, later on, we see also that the, the Pharisees, the high priests are sitting there and they're like, you know, 
You've done nothing up until this point. They're talking to each other. Now look, the whole world is going out after him. And they're like, look at this. Because there was a basically such a buzz going on that the whole city is shaking as if there's an earthquake going on. And they say, who is this? And so verse 11 says, so the multitude, multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Hold on a minute. Didn't we just talk about this in Deuteronomy? Do you remember? And what, I mean, what chapter was that? Like 18, where Moses says, God's going to send one from your people. And we talked about it. It says, the prophet, he's going to send the prophet. And John the Baptist said, it's not me, but there's one coming. And we identified that prophet as being Jesus, the one that God was going to send. Here he is arriving. By the way, if you're into numbers, which I'm not, <laughs> you see, Daniel in chapter 9 predicts the return of the Messiah. And you can read that, but there's a guy that uh, wrote about this, Sir Robert Anderson. He takes all the information that he finds in Deuteronomy chapter 9, what Daniel predicts in terms of the timeline of when the Messiah would come, based on when the Assyrian king said, go back and rebuild. From that point on, there is a number of, well, it's not good to count it in years, but count it in actual days. It's 173,880 days from the moment that the king said, go ahead and go back and rebuild, 173,880 days to the day is this day when Jesus rides in on the donkey. To the day. Man, I kind of think God knows what he's doing here. I mean, prophecy is fulfilled. The timing is right to the day. Jesus is there. Uh, they understand the donkey situation. They actually identify him as the prophet who was said that would come. It's all lining up. Then it says in verse 12 that Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And so Jesus comes in. He rides in, and just like Judah Maccabee went in and he cleansed the temple, Jesus goes in to the temple. He does not go to overthrow the Romans. He comes in to overthrow the sin of his people. He goes in and he turns over not just those who sold, by the way. Do you see that? Who bought and sold. That means that if you were there buying... You were just as guilty as those who were selling, at least in this situation. Now, I get it. You had to come and you had to bring an offering at this time of year. And the idea was like, well, if I come with a lamb that I've, you know, I've raised this lamb and I'm going to walk them all the way to Jerusalem. And by the time I get there, the high priest is going to look at it and say, no, it's not good. There's a spot here. You have to buy one of ours that you would actually have to buy another sacrifice because yours was rejected. 
But what had happened was they had set up a marketplace in the Gentile court of the temple. The Gentile court was the, the furthest court out, and that was where everybody could go who had access. There was the Gentile, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, and then the court where just the priests were able to go. And if you weren't one of those, you couldn't go into those so that the, everybody could go to the court of the Gentiles, but the Gentiles couldn't go into the court of the women, or they would be killed immediately. In the court of the Gentiles is where this marketplace had been set up, where there was commerce going on, buying and selling, not just buying and selling, though it wasn't honest buying and selling. See, what would happen is that they would come with their sacrifice, um, and the high priest would, would deem that it was not acceptable, and they would have to then buy another one. It's estimated that that was marked up 75% normal price. Out if they had brought it themselves. And guess who was running and benefiting from the entire operation? The high priest and his family. The very one who was to say whether it was an acceptable sacrifice or not was the one who actually was running and benefiting from the marketplace. Well, Jesus comes in and he flips over all the money changers and he chases everybody out, even those who bought and sold. And I actually wrote a note to myself somewhere. Here it is right here. He's talking about opportunity and convenience. You know what? Was it inconvenient to bring your lamb all the way from your home? Probably. But maybe that's what God wanted them to do. Maybe it was that they were going to have to pick up that lamb and put it over their shoulders and take care of it to make sure that it wasn't blemished on the way there. Maybe they had to make sure that they carefully took care of that sacrifice, that lamb or those doves if you were poor, um, to make sure that nothing happened to them so that when you got there, they were perfect and sacrificed. So much so that when you offered it as an offering, that it meant something to you. It wasn't just a dumb animal that you dragged along. God continues to remind me when David went to buy a threshing floor in order to build an altar to God, and he went to the man who owned the threshing floor, and he said, you can have it, David, you can have the threshing floor. And David said, no, no, I'll pay you whatever it's worth because I will not offer to God what has cost me nothing. And so Jesus steps in and he cleanses the temple. He drives out. Incidentally, this is the second time he's done this. You know, at the beginning of his ministry, when he comes in, he does the same thing. Only the first time he makes a whip out of cords, and he goes in and he starts driving the money changers and, the, and the, basically he drives all the commerce out of the court of Gentiles. And I'm sure for a little while, um, it was completely cleansed. There wasn't anybody there. But then you know what? One day, one of those vendors just kind of like, I'm just going to set up over here. And he puts out a little card table with a couple of doves and he's in there and he's just like, and nobody says anything. And then someone else goes, well, well, he's here, I'm going to set up. And pretty soon, it's very subtle, but pretty soon, another vendor comes in and another vendor and another vendor. And pretty soon, you've got a marketplace that once again is so full that Jesus comes in and says, you've made my father's house a marketplace, a place of commerce. And you see how that you know, happens? It's so subtle. You see how even in our own hearts, when we pray and ask God, would you cleanse my heart, Lord, please, so that I could be clean before you. And, and he does it. But you have to be so on guard because those things start to subtly slip back in one little thing at a time. And pretty soon you find yourself back in the place. You're like, how, how, did, I, 
How did I get to this place again? Well, luckily, Jesus will come in and he'll cleanse you every time. Cleanse you every time. If you ask him to, if you say, forgive me, Lord. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Cleanse my heart. Well, Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple again. He says in verse 13, it is written that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. In, in, in the gospel of Mark, he explains it even more. He says, um, my house is a house of prayer for all. He says for all, because remember, we're talking about the court of the Gentiles, you know, for anyone that was actually, and that was the thing I think that made Jesus so mad was that they had made this place the only place that a Gentile could go and to have some kind of relationship with God, some kind of connection to God. The only place that they could come and try and pray in this temp, this courtyard of the Gentiles was filled with a noisy marketplace. And they were standing in the way of these people coming to have a relationship. It was the only place they could go. And so he goes, I'm going to come in, and I'm going, to, I'm going to over... Yes, you want me to overcome your enemies? Your enemies aren't the Romans. Your enemies are greed and, 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 and commercialism and, and convenience and dishonesty. Those are the enemies that I'm going to come in, and those are the enemies, the oppressors of your soul, that I'm going to come in, and those are the ones that I'm going to defeat. So was his entry triumphal? Yes, it was. Was it in the way that they thought? I don't think so. Which is why I believe that this same huge multitude of people who cried out, Hosanna, save now. Did I skip that? Hosanna, the son of David, save now. They're calling out. Why this same crowd can on just a few short days later be crying out, crucify him when he's held up in front. Because they were like, yes, he's going to come in and he's going to defeat the enemy of our liberty. And Jesus says, I am, but that enemy is you and your sin. But I'm coming to defeat that for you. And they looked at it, they were like, no, 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 no. That's not, that, that's not what we wanted. Before, when we said, save us now, king, and we worshiped you, and we threw down our shawls, now I'm picking my shawl back up. Oh, you're going to come in and tell me you know, that all the, the, everything in my life is wrong? I don't want that. I, you're not my king. You're not, no, you're no longer my king. You know what? In fact, crucify him. Crucify him. Because you're not going to come in and tell me that I'm my own fault. I'm my own oppressor. My own sin in my life is what is the enemy of my liberty. But that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly what it is. So then I love this part. Verse 14, it says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. You see, that's the thing. Uh, Like everybody, I'm sure it was like chaotic. Can you imagine? He's like thrown over temples and birds are flying. Everything's like sheep are like, and they're running all over the place. And people are like, what are you doing? And then I'm sure there are people like scooping up the coins that have fell on the ground. Just imagine the bedlam that's going on. And he's running around and he's driving people out. And finally the court, I just imagine like the dust settles and there's no one in there except the blind and the lame who aren't afraid. They come to Jesus. And it's like, you know what? When he comes in and he just, and he crushes and wipes out 
the things that are keeping you from him in your life and you come to him broken and in need of healing. He does it and he healed them and they came to him and he cleansed them. But it says in verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things, I don't think they probably said, look at the wonderful things he's doing. Uh, and actually, the word is marvel, marvelous, meaning like, like out of the ordinary. Things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna, the son of David. They were indignant. It means they, they resented him because the little children were coming to him and running to him and saying, son of David, Hosanna, like the little children were coming. They also weren't afraid, by the way. And they said, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Do you understand who he's talking to? He's talking to the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees who out of anybody should know exactly. He loved to do that, by the way. When they would come and they would say, by what authority? Why are you doing this? Who are you? And he would say, have you never read? And they're like, they're like what? what? Read? I, I read it every day, all the time. I read constantly. He says, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. And Jesus says, look at these little ones coming to me. Look at these unfettered. Uh, uh, un, uh, let's see, I wrote a note here as well. Somewhere. Pure. In their praise. Pure. Unaffected by those around them. He says, they have perfected praise because it's pure it's unfiltered oftentimes the word will say to us you need to come to him as a child unburdened by the worries of oh, i want to pray for dinner at the restaurant but what if the waiter comes and gives us water or bread while we're praying what's he going to think he's we're going to think that we're totally weird he may or he may sit there and pray with you while you pray and you may never know because your eyes are closed and your head is bowed in fact, I prayed with a friend one time in the middle of the supermarket, thought I was alone, opened my eyes, and there's a lady who worked there standing right next to us, and she goes, amen, and off she goes. And I was like, hallelujah, it was amazing. You know, because in that moment, and I don't do this as often as I wish I did, but in that moment, it was praise and prayer and faith like a child's, unfiltered, pure. It was amazing. I just want to live there every day. Don't you want to live there every day? Well, it says that Jesus left them, and, and you can read on, and you can hear the, you can read, and you're probably familiar with everything that goes on. Um, during this week, he goes in and out of the temple, and he teaches. And here's the amazing thing. Like, they were looking for Jesus. There was a time, like, they were saying to people, if anyone knows where this man Jesus is, come and tell us so that we can come and take him. And what does he do? He rides in in grand fashion on a donkey surrounded by screaming people. In fact, they're so loud that another gospel, it says that the Pharisees came up and they said, do you hear what they're saying about you? Make them stop. They're saying you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Make them stop. You know what Jesus says? Even if I did, the very rocks would cry out. That means that you cannot stop this, is what Jesus was saying. It doesn't matter if you shut all of their mouths. The rocks themselves selves will start to cry out and say, Hosanna, Messiah, Son of God. Amen? 
there's a song that we sing every once in a while called um, Ain't No Rock. And it goes something like, <clears throat> no, I'm not going to sing <laughs> No. It says this, ain't no rock going to stand in my place. It means I'm not going to let a rock call out because I kept my mouth shut. I will praise the Lord. Amen. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word this morning, Lord, for these amazing uh, examples that you've given us. And Lord, how you show us how you have fulfilled prophecy and will continue to do so. Oh, that gives me such hope for the future, Lord. Lord, I just hang on to every word that you speak. Uh, Lord, I just love you so much. I, I just can't stop praising you. Lord, let my praise be unfiltered and pure as the children in, in the story from this morning, Lord. Let my words draw other people to you so that they might then praise you. And let their words draw other people to you so that they might praise you. And Lord, that's how it goes from one to the next, on and on and on, until you return for all of us, Lord. I just thank you. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.